Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. Today's talk is by Peter McDonough, Director of Design and Science at the Kestrel Design Group, specializing in ecological restoration, urban forestry, stormwater planning, and green roof technologies. This podcast features his talk on tree species diversity and water quality. It was originally presented at the 2014 ISA International Conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm very glad to be here, and I am a landscape architect. <clears throat> and, uh, and for good reason, we have a bad reputation. Uh, for good reason, because all of you have seen uh, projects, the drawings, show big, big trees, and yet uh, the trees are planted in soil volumes that are about the size of this uh, lectern right here. And it's a kind of a magical thinking, <clears throat> kind of like if I plant the tree, it's, it's like the million tree programs, in a sense, kind of like if I do that, it's like waving a magic wand, and it'll, I'll get all these ecological services <clears throat> simply by just doing that. And uh, that's a nice idea. <clears throat> but it hasn't worked out well for, for our profession. And I think, I think you know, we'll, uh, we'll come around, but it's, it's going to take a long time. And unfortunately, you guys are stuck with the, stuck with the cleanup problem in terms of uh, what got planted. And uh, too many of, I, li I like, forget, forget three species. I want the tree. <laughs> uh, that's, that's really not a good thing, but very much so within our profession. Um, it's, it's embarrassing sometimes how few species, a few trees that uh, landscape architects can identify. Um, anyway, I'm, I've been a certifi certified arborist since uh, early, I think, 92, 90, 90, 91, 92, something like that. And, uh, one of the things I've always liked about ISA is this, this cross-pollination that happens between uh, practice and science. And there's this interrelationship that's, that goes on, <clears throat> which I think has really made ISA uh, and arboriculture and the training of arborists a much better deal. Uh, landscape architects are only starting to ask for CEUs now to keep up your license, so we have about 30 years to go. And, uh, <clears throat> So this is a picture of Minneapolis. <clears throat> How many people don't know where Minneapolis is? Okay. If this is, uh, we're in the, almost in the middle of the United States. Lake Michigan is right beside us. If you go a little west, you'll hit another lake. It's called Lake Superior. Um, Minneapolis is a little south of, of Lake Superior. Um, it's Minneapolis and St. Paul. 
the, the, the call letter is MSP. That's, it's easier for, for me to say that. We're not, we keep on saying we're a Twin Cities, but there's Twin Cities all over the country. Uh, so in any case, Minneapolis is zone four, USDA zone four. And I don't know what trees did or didn't read the, the zone hardiness map, but in any case, we get, we get pretty cold winters. Um, last winter, we got down to about 26 below uh, Fahrenheit. That's air temp. <clears throat> and the winter before, we had about 24 below. Um, so we get pretty cold temperatures, but we also get quite a bit of snow, which helps insulate a lot of things. Mississippi River flows through Minneapolis, St. Paul. It pretty much cuts right through it. It starts in about three quarters of the way up Minnesota, flows. Minneapolis, St. Paul is one of the big cities. St. Louis is another one, and New Orleans is. Those are kind of like the big three cities on the Mississippi River. And the chain of lakes that I'm going to talk about, this lake in particular, Lake Calhoun, it eventually makes its way into the Mississippi River, too. Um, <clears throat> if I was to kind of draw a map of, of Minneapolis and its park system, it would be, this is the Mississippi River cutting out a diagonal. Downtown Minneapolis is right here. And right here at the bottom is Minnehaha Creek. And in between is a group of about eight lakes called the Chain of Lakes. So it's like that. And that is the Grand Rounds. Horace Cleveland, um, a very good landscape architect, knew his, knew his trees, knew his vegetation. He laid that out. The Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board is one of the only, only parks that parks uh, situations where it's not a department. It's its own. It has its own tax levying authority. It's pretty common in Illinois, but in most other parts of the country, not common. And uh, they've made an excellent park system. If you go there, uh, I'm not just biased. It really is an excellent park system. And they don't have enough money and all the other things, but the chain of lakes is the most visited thing in uh, the state of Minnesota. It goes back and forth between the, cha the chain of lakes and the Mall of America for number one. So uh, it's pretty good. I mean, that's pretty good for you know, lakes to hold up against the Mall of America. That, I think that's pretty impressive. So <clears throat> the center of these lakes, um, is Lake Calhoun, which is the biggest of them and the deepest of them. And it's, it's really the jewel in the crown of the chain of lakes. And around the chain of lakes uh, is the most expensive real estate in, typically in Minnesota. And if, if, you're a, if you're a big wheel in Minnesota or in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, you have arrived if you have a big house on the chain of lakes. That, that's it. The other lake, the other place that's got really valuable real estate, probably the second back and forth, is Lake Minnetonka. So in terms of square footage, though, the chain of lakes has the highest price real estate in the, in the cities and the state. And the reason for that is because these lakes look like this. So that's, that's Lake Calhoun. 400 acres, so about two-thirds of a section. And there's no motors allowed on there, it's, so it's relatively free of gas fumes and noise and stuff like that. A lot of sailboats. And that's downtown Minneapolis right there, which is about 30 blocks 
straight from that, that where that beach house building is straight, straight northeast. So, so the Mississippi River, River runs through there, and the Chain of Lakes is to the north and to the south of this. And then, as I said, it connects up with, the, like I said, the uh, Minnehaha Creek, which goes into the Mississippi River. So I'll give it, uh, an overview of uh, what I'm going to talk about. So obviously, everyone here knows about the potential value of trees, but it's worth, it's worth saying. And uh, the, the challenges of realizing their potential is that our profession in particular, landscape architects, have not been given trees what they need. And um, they need, as John said, it's not like an ash tree or an elm tree where the question wasn't, is um, what's the soil type? It's, is there any soil at all? And the tree will grow there. Um, th that's not the case anymore for, uh, for getting diversity. <clears throat> Build resiliency in our tree canopy. So essentially move away from something where it's, think about, I like to think about systems as resilient or brittle. <clears throat> and we have a brittle urban forest in a lot of our cities and in Minneapolis in particular. And it wasn't, it's just that's the way it shook out. Uh, a correlation, so I'm gonna, correlation, I'm, I'm, this is not a cause and effect, this is based on observation over several decades of water quality and canopy change uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And it applies to all of the chain of lakes, but it's, the, Calhoun has the biggest catchment area, so it has the biggest watershed, and it had the most things that could potentially impact it. And then how, how, how resiliency in the urban tra, tra, tree canopy can improve water quality. Uh, a critical issue, in, in my opinion. So I'm going to take you through this little story. Um, so here's how they work. Big three. They evapotranspire, they intercept, and they infiltrate. So the one I'm going to talk about mainly today is interception which is the smallest of the three, the three major ways the trees manage water. <clears throat> and I'm sorry my brain thinks this way. Uh, I mean, trees were here just to, they take up water, they don't take up water, but when I'm dealing with engineers, I have to talk to them like this, because I, I deal with engineers an awful lot, and also landscape architects, but mainly engineers. And so I have to put it to them in terms of services. This is what trees do. So. <clears throat> Those are the big three. Infiltration, evapotranspiration, and interception. And as I said, interception is the smallest of those three. Now, we, to compound the issue, within North America, <clears throat> so think about the whole continent of North America, well, not the entire continent. Let's go to Mexico, the border of Mexico. There's a few little stripes of rain, places where rain falls where it's kind of like Europe or Seattle. And most everywhere else in North America is what we call type two storms. They're high intensity, they're short duration, and there's long intervals or a low frequency that we have with them. And that's almost all of North America. That's not some of North America. If you look at these maps, um, it's about 90% of the continent. Um, and those are hard to manage. Storms that come fast means what we, get, what we call time of concentration. So all the water gets to one place really, really quickly, and then we have to try and deal with it. And 
one of the things that happened after World War II are all of these separate stormwater systems were put in, and they were designed to be essentially on call 24-7, 365 days a year, forever and ever and ever. Well, that's what we thought we were buying, but it turns out that the, when the engineers was, were designing them, they were designing them for a 30-year life, sometimes a 40-year life. And how long have those pipes been in the ground? They've been in the ground longer than 30 years. And one of the things that happens as a result of high-intensity storms and, and low frequency between storms is every, all the surfaces get dirty. So the roofs get dirty, the streets get dirty, the sidewalks get dirty, and when that stormwater comes through there, the small part of the storm, it picks that material up and it moves it straight into the piping system. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing in between. It goes gray infrastructure, which is pipes, streets, roofs, etc., and into blue infrastructure. So it goes straight to the water body. So there's, no, there's, no, there's a direct connect, as they would say. Um, what, we have, what we need to do to manage stormwater differently is we need to put green infrastructure in between those two things. And when we do that, this works better, the gray infrastructure works better, and the blue infrastructure works better. The water quality improves, and the gray infrastructure lasts longer. And here's the reason why. So the dirtiest part of the storm is that first one inch that's washing all the stuff off of those surfaces. And then in the past, it's been going straight into the pipe and then it's a small storm. So a lot of it's the, the first, the, the gravel and the sands, the heavy sands, they settle out in about 40 seconds. Silt takes seven hours, so it's not gonna settle out till it gets to a water body like uh, I just showed you, like Lake Calhoun. Um, so though all of that gravel has settled out in 40 seconds, so it's at the early part of the pipe, uh, the, the high up the watershed. So it's got a lot of pipes that it's gonna go through before it gets to the surface water body. And what happens is, is then when the big storm comes through, it'll blast through and, and water is moving at, try to get your head around this, 10 to 15 feet per second. I, at, at, at five feet per second in a stream in six inches of water, I'm basically a big piece of woody debris. It'll knock me over and knock me downstream. That's the kind of speeds and energy we're talking about. And so they literally sandblast the inside of those pipes. So, they were designed for 30 years, but now because we're putting all of this small, this grit in there, we're making them fail sooner. <clears throat> so if we take the gray infrastructure and instead of making it an everyday thing, if we make it basically something that we just use for emergencies, it will perform well and it will probably perform for two or three times its life that we've imagined. And then to compound this even further, we have climate change. And in, in North America, well, let's stick with the U.S. Um, in the Midwest, where we're standing right now, storms are predicted, heavy storms, the, the ones that come fast and furious, are predicted to increase by 42%. And it used to be 30, about 10 years ago, it was about 32%. Now it's gone up, they, they said, oh, it's even more, gonna be even more. The West, or the East Coast, rather, is 74%. So it's like mind-boggling. I think Sandy might have had something to do with that. And so just think about all those storms, that high-intensity blast and that stuff true. So this is the way our stormwater system has, has worked. 
Um, I get a paper cut, I pick up the phone, I call 911, they send out an ambulance. And they're taking care of my paper cut. Another guy down the street gets a heart attack, they send an ambulance out for him. Somebody else gets a stroke, the same thing. And then a guy has kidney failure, um, and they say, sorry, we don't have any ambulances. The guy with the paper cut, when he's done, we'll, we'll, we'll get that ambulance over to you. Um, we have to deal with the paper cuts in the landscape, with the trees, with the soil that goes with the trees, and with the evapotranspiration that the trees do. And uh, you probably know this, but in any case, about 10, less than 10% goes to photosynthesis of trees, and about 90% of it goes to evapotranspiration, so the water moving up, up the tree and out into the atmosphere. So that's, we don't have to worry about shorting the photosynthesis out if we're with the water. We're, it's an evapotransportive machine. In, in to, when I explained it to engineers, that's the way I talked to them. It's a solar-powered evapotransportive machine. And uh, so anyways, the diagram on, the, on your left here is just basically to, sh to show what that looks like. I apologize about the, the, the numbers on that, on the side of that, that is no longer correct. But I wanted to show you what the interception is for these big trees. The one on the right is from McPherson, and essentially it shows a tree. Uh, on the left bar, it's gallons of interception per year, and on the right bottom, it's age of the tree. So at five years, this, this is a hackberry. It's going to absorb, uh, you know, like about uh, maybe 100 gallons a year. By the time it gets up to about 40 years, it's going to be intercepting, there's a 5,000 gallon tank right there where that guy is standing. It's going to be intercepting one of those every year. Now, say I have a street with 10, or I have a block with 10 trees on it, that's 50,000 gallons. That's a lot more than a swimming pool. And that's just the interception part. That's not the part where I could put it in the soil and then start to evapotranspire it. So it's a big, big volume. Natalie Shanstrom and I, in our office, uh, we did a white paper, and it's on the Deep Root website. And uh, you, you, can, you can look it up, but essentially what we did was we used the iTree model for valuing trees, and then we did a little exercise where we said, okay, the Sierra and Mole said that the average street tree was living for 13 years. Um, Roman is saying that they're in the 23 to 29 year range, but that's including other trees in, in park and residential settings, not just on streets. And then there's some earlier researchers have said seven years. So seven years, 23 years, 13 years. So I'm picking this 13 year. So over a 50 year time period, how much does it cost to put in a tree in a, incorrectly to the municipality or if the developer put it in? What is the net cost of that? And the net cost of putting a tree improperly in with the soil volume like this that's only gonna live for on average 13 years is about $3,000 net loss. That's not gain, that's net loss. <clears throat> if the tree is planted properly, and in this case we wanted to go very conservative, so we picked out uh, a, a, some, a tree system that would put a tree in and it would be about $6,000 per tree. Installed, under sidewalk, that's how much it would cost. And what we found was that tree over its lifespan of 50 years that's an arbitrary number, we picked 50, would be $25,000 plus. 
So minus $3,000 or $25,000 plus, and I can't do that with my hands, but um, that's a big, 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 big difference. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the impacts of that in a little bit. So here's the elm trees. Um, what I, what I, when I show the, this to engineers, I say, I want you to think of these as sticks with gigantic tanks on top of them. And they, they kind of get that. It's like, oh, it's like a water tower. Yeah, it's like a water tower. So it's absorbing water. And then if you put it in the soil, it'll evapotranspire it as well. Excuse me. John did a perfect tee up for diversity. So this is the elm trees uh, in Minneapolis. And John was very good at showing what that is. It was first detected in Minneapolis in 63. Uh, by 1972, it had picked up steam, and it was starting to, trees were starting to die really fast. Um, uh, Chad Tinkle from Fort Wayne has talked about the death spiral with ash trees and EAB. This is the same thing. So in 1977, 31,000 elm trees were removed uh, in Minneapolis. Next year, 20,000. All told, there was almost 300,000 trees removed from the city of Minneapolis. And the average size of those that were removed was 30, DBA, 30 inch DBH or bigger. And now we have emerald ash borer coming. <clears throat> and yet John took us through that very well, so I think I don't need to go into that. So here's, here's the city of Minneapolis. It's about 58 square miles, about three plus miles, square miles of it are water. And over to the left on, the, on your side, you can see these water bodies. Those are the chain of lakes that are running all the way up. They'll be close to the Mississippi and then down to Minnehaha Creek. That was the size of the elm canopy loss. And we projected a 30-inch tree having a 1,000-square-foot canopy, which is really modest. It would typically be quite a bit bigger than that, but we picked a 1,000 square feet. Say we're, say we're, twi we're off by twice. It's that maybe it's half that size, 500 square feet average. Um, that's about 17 to 18 square miles of canopy. That's continuous canopy. I don't mean, I don't mean there's a space in between. I mean, it's like the ceiling tiles in here. They're touching each other. That's what that canopy is equivalent to. So that's a lot. This is the potential loss of canopy from the ash trees, because about 21% of the urban forest in Minneapolis is ash trees. And there'll, there'll be some people that treat their ash trees, but for the most part, they're going to be, they're going to be dying, <clears throat> and they're going to be cleared and removed. This is the, I'll get done soon. I heard a yawn. <laughs> <clears throat> this is what the, the, the population of trees in Minneapolis looks like right now. And you can see that for four genuses, which have 54% of the total population of trees, and the diversity is occurring on the left side of that graph in terms of the genera and species. Uh, but clearly, this is not something that's a resilient system. This is a brittle system. I talked earlier about rainfall. And up in that top right corner, you can see um, this is the projected increase. And this is from NOAA. So they're looking at these increases in heavy storms. And you can see the Midwest there, 45% and 74% for the Northeast. So right when we really need a good urban canopy to be intercepting water so we're not pushing gravel and sand into pipes and wearing them out, 
we are now facing this kind of challenge as well. So how do we build it? Well, the first thing we got to do, and I'm sorry, this is a, this is a Freeman's Maple, but you kind of get the idea. This is downtown Marquette and Second Avenue, in which the trees are planted in the Silvacell system. They're a client of ours. I should uh, give you some transparency there. In any case, we worked on this project. It was funded by Tiger Funds, and they couldn't take money, they couldn't take, redo the project to take water from the street. So all it does is it takes water from the face of the building, some of the roofs, and the sidewalks. And it runs it into where those people are standing. There's a white band. Those are pervious pavers. Water goes in there. And the whole system was designed, these 48 block faces, it's two busways, one north, one south. And it's designed to capture five and a half acres of impervious. An acre is about 208 feet by 208 feet. So think of it as 208 feet by about 1,020 feet long. That's how big five and a half acres of catchment is. And that's how much impervious is being stopped from going into the stormwater system because it's been intercepted there. And about four blocks away from the north end of this is the Mississippi River. So it goes straight to the Mississippi River. And you can see the growth right here, 10, 11, 12, 13. And those are not leprechauns. Those are real people there that are in those pictures. They work in our office. And uh, there's, the, there's the change over time. So in a four-year period, four foot taller and five and a half feet wider. And you can see how many more. The leaf area index has increased dramatically over that time. I don't, we didn't do a count on them, but I'm sure it's close to an order of magnitude change. We need soil. And uh, it's, it's, it's not the, it's not, is there any soil at all? It really is. Is there soil? Is there loam? It's not builder's mulch, which is kind of like a mixture of concrete, uh, chunks of two by fours, and bits of plastic buckets and stuff like that, and drywall. It's not that stuff on the left, which is under a sidewalk. Now, the compaction rate for the, for the world in which engineers live is the bottom end of what's acceptable in compaction is 95%. And at what point do trees, roots stop growing in soil? 5%. So their bottom part is the top end of where trees can survive, tree roots can survive. Grass roots, they say maybe 3%. So that's where engineers begin, is at 95% and more compact. But that real estate doesn't, is already bought and paid for and it doesn't belong to the utility companies, even though they think they own it. Instead, it can have soil volumes underneath it, like the one on the right, where we have basically this stuff that's the same as in your garden. It has lots of macropores, and it has the capacity to, those macropores are what hold what's called gravity water. So within the total volume, if I have a cubic foot of, of soil, within that, I can hold a fifth of a cubic foot in water. And that's water that runs out. But it, it's delayed, and it's cleaned before it would go into the pipe system. And to get it, we're going to need lots of it. And the research has gone from a one-to-one -one relationship, one square unit of canopy, to one cubic unit of soil, to three-to-one. And the one that we've picked is the Lindsay Bassick one at two-to-one. Two units in the ground, one unit in the canopy. And you can see there, this is uh, adapted from Jim Urban's graph on tree growth. 
And you can see essentially when we go up in the, in the orders of a, several hundred cubic feet, we start to see trees that have big canopies and they start to have big DBHs. In this case, he tapers it out to, I think, 18 inches DBH. And the blue part is what's called free water. That's the gravity water that can go in there and be stored. And basically, under the pressure of gravity, it runs out of the soil. So that's, that's between field capacity and saturation. So all of that water can be stored in there. And then there's the water that can be stored between wilt point and field capacity, which can be evapotranspired largely. So these are the, the kind of the ingredients that we're going to need to redo our urban forest. And the purpose of it being, as I explain it to you, is this is the way I explain it to engineers. We're going to need the soil. We're going to need this kind of uh, tree stock, you know, and no co-dominance, et cetera. Good pruning practices. And that, that tag is a price tag. Um, at uh, the Minnesota State Capitol where they were trying to make the case for more money for trees, and uh, pretty effective. So is there a connection? There's an elm tree, um, or an ash tree, excuse me, on the left, and water clarity and water quality. And I'm going to talk about water clarity because it's, what it's, it's what's called a proxy for quality. People look at water that's clear and they say, it must be high quality. They look at water that's gray or black, they say that's pretty low quality. And if it's green, it's like, that's very bad in their mind. That's generally the perception. So there's the chain of lakes. There they are right there. And that's Calhoun in the center. And it's almost got 1,000 acres of catchment area that drains into that 400 acres of the lake. And that's all impervious. And development stopped in that watershed because it was built out in about 1952, 53, completely built out. Lawns everywhere, older buildings, that's, that's the age of that that's infrastructure in that watershed. That's what it looks like from the air. And on the bottom left, I'm sorry, it's not very clear, but I'll point it out. Right here are a bunch of treatment wetlands that we worked on that are capturing most of the western part of this watershed before it goes into Lake Calhoun. And we worked on that project in the late 90s. And we worked on a whole bunch of other projects like that for the chain of lakes. And you can see that little key up there is showing where there's treatment wetlands or grit chambers or buffers or various other things along the chain of lakes to improve the water quality or the clarity, the water clarity. So this is how you measure clarity in a lake. It's called a secchi disk. It's about four inches in diameter, basically a black triangle, two black triangles, two white triangles. You lower it down. And you can kind of see the marks on the one on the right there, on the picture going into the green water. Those are foot intervals. So basically, it's measured by feet or metric as well. But in any case, the main thing about it is, is that when you can't see it, that's considered the end of the clarity point. So the clarity could be six inches, or it could be six feet. So people perceive, now we're looking to look at the graphic on the left there. People perceive that a clear lake is higher water quality. And a turbid lake, one with stuff in it, is a dirty, dirty lake. And Bemidji State University did a, did a research project, and they vetted it, and they tried it out with a couple of thousand houses to look at what is the value of a, of a house on a lake when it's got a clear lake or when it's got a green lake. What is that value? 
And what they found was, is that if you have a, and you can see that house there, those people there don't want a green lake. That's my guess. My guess is they have an army of lawyers at their disposal that they could sick on whatever entity it is that's supposed to be managing water clarity in that lake. <clears throat> and in summary, it's this. If you, go f if you have a drop in three feet, you have a drop in real estate values that are anywhere from 20 to 30%. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody that wants to hear that their property values drop by 20 to 30% because they probably have loaned out what it was going to cost if it was a high-quality lake. So this is Lake Calhoun starting in 1953, so right after the watershed had been developed out. And you can see what's happening over time. It's starting to decrease. But look at in the, in the late 80s or 80s, 90s, where it came down to. So those are meters. I'm sorry I didn't make that clear on the left bar. <clears throat> so when it's down at 1.5, 1.2 meters or so, that means it went down to about four feet distance. <clears throat> and then about 1994, you see they start to bump up, 95, 96, 2008. And you can see a few, there's, a, there's a little spot in the center there in the, in the late 90s where the clarity dropped a bit. Those were really dry years. So in drier years, the water quality decreases because it's not being flushed out of the lake. <clears throat> that, that area with the red around it, that's right around the sweet spot of when the most elms were removed out of the canopies in, out of the canopy of Minneapolis. Now it's a correlative study. So somebody else will come back here in 20 years and say, we looked at the ash trees and he was wrong or yeah, he was right. That's, that's what happened. Again, these are the treatment devices, so around these chain of lakes. So the, the, the city, the watershed, and a couple of other agencies spent $12 million on part of this. All told, the whole, all of these treatments around these lakes was about 30 million bucks. It, was, it cost <clears throat> in 70s and 80s dollars about 20, 20, between 20 and $25 million to remove the elm trees. That wasn't to plant new ones, that was just to remove it. So let's add 30 and, <clears throat> 30 and uh, excuse me, and 25, and we're at $55 million. That's, that's a serious put of money. Now that's the, whole, that's the whole of Minneapolis, it's not the, all of it. Say in this area, it's only $20 million. $20 million, that's some folding money. So again, we want to do these three things, evapotranspire, uh, infiltrate, and intercept. <clears throat> and I, I, I said I was going to make some other points here, so I obviously was wrong. I, did, I didn't make the points. Those treatment wetlands, we built those, and those are on park property, so the land didn't have to be bought again, but it basically took up more park property. And so the park board gave land, a watershed district supplied cash, and we built these treatment wetlands. So I have five minutes left. And these are designed exclusively for the small rain. That's what they're about. It's to intercept that small rain. It's that one inch of rain. And the nice thing about this is it's not hard to remember. If you live anywhere in North America except for like Seattle and the southeast, down by Florida and Georgia and parts of South Carolina, you can pretty much count that if you stop the one inch of rain 
you are taking care of 90% of the rain events for the year. And and Hawaii, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, I didn't make it clear. Continental United States. <laughs> so if you're on the continental United States, or in big chunks of Canada, it's the same thing. So you t intercept the one-inch storm, you are taking care of over 60% of the total rain for the year. So if you hold that up in the canopy, or evapotranspire it because you put it in the ground and the trees are evapotranspiring it, You've basically added a whole bunch of value to the stormwater system that it didn't have before. Because you've taken out the scouring storms, the ones that scour out the pipes, and you've increased capacity. You basically put another 60% of capacity underground without digging up the pipes and putting them in. Let me tell you, tr they think trees are expensive. Wait till, wait till they tell you what re reinforced concrete pipe buried 10, 12 feet in the ground costs. Um, a pipe that's 48 inches, in a, under a city street is about 300 bucks a linear foot. That's expensive. And there are hundreds of miles of them. So it's not like there's 10 miles and they can get it done in a hurry and it'll be all over with. This is a huge problem. So the connection I'm trying to make, it's a correlative connection, is that cutting the canopy down because we only had one, we only had, we were over dependent on a few species has had a huge impact on the chain of lakes, and I'm going to leave you with leaving this picture up. This concludes Peter McDonough's talk on tree diversity and water quality. If you would like to learn more, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including Planning the Urban Forest, Ecology, Economy, and Community Development, a significant collection of case studies. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this lecture, visit the ISA online store and select online CEU quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arborculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.